I'm Rob. And I'm Dave. And you're listening to Alternate Galaxies, a spin-off from the Doctor Who show podcast where, from time to time, Dave, we sit down and talk about other great science fiction and genre shows that we think our audience might like. How are you today? I'm good. It's a beautiful spring late afternoon here in Melbourne. We finished watching Ahsoka in the last few days and we're here to talk about the first season. That's right. We're here to talk about Ahsoka. It ran from August 22nd till October 3rd. We will, of course, have a spoiler curtain come down at some stage. But before then, Dave, let's have a bit of a general chat about Ahsoka. I guess the obvious thing to start with is how did we approach this series with with excitement, with trepidation? Had you watched much Clone Wars or Rebels before this, which is where the Ahsoka character really came into her own? The floor is yours. So, Rob, I was initially, when this was very first mooted, that there was going to be an Ahsoka show, mm-hmm. I was probably more indifferent to this than I was to anything else they'd proposed because I had very little knowledge of the Ahsoka character and right. didn't really register much for me at all. And, you know, going into it, I got more excited as things went on. Partly that's coming off the back of Andor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you and I both raved about Andor. I think we both put it up there with Empire and Rogue One and Mando Series 1 and some of that really good Star Wars. Uh, you and I, I think, were both quite disappointed by Book of Boba Fett. We've both been enjoying mm-hmm. Mando. I kind of rode along with Kenobi more than you did. So they've probably been more hits than misses for us in this franchise, but there have been misses. So, you know, and all that wave of positivity kept me going. Then I saw the trailer where they gratuitously dropped the phrase heir to the Empire and they (laughs) talked about Thrawn and Ezra and characters I like and we'll talk more about those potentially later on. So my excitement actually grew quite a bit and I was actually quite looking forward to this by the time it dropped, which was good marketing for someone who only really knows Ahsoka as a bit character in the Rebel show that I've seen about two-thirds of Mm -hmm. and a guest appearance in in Mando Series 2, was it? Yes, yes, it was. I had to think about that. Yeah, she wasn't in the awful Season 3. She was in the one before that, yes, Season 2. Yeah, well, look, I, I am a bit different insofar as I watched Clone Wars as it all happened. I watched Rebels as it all happened, so they're, they're both embedded in my mind, and I knew the Ahsoka character. Ahsoka's a character I didn't initially like because they did bring her into Clone Wars as a youngster, relatively, like a, a, an early sort of teen, and she would call Anakin Skywalker Sky Guy, and she was very annoying, and she'd do things that would wreck plans. I was like, oh my god, this character is so annoying. It was all part of a longer-term arc, though, that they were working towards, that she would mature, and so on. And now we're seeing the the result of that maturity. She is she is quite a mature Jedi. Yeah. Well, she, she wouldn't refer to herself as a Jedi, of course. She is an interesting character, and I thought this could be really good. There's been some good storytelling in Clone Wars, good storytelling in Rebels. She has become a good character, as I say. The Thrawn character is, of course, one that many Star Wars fans like, whether they read the original Heir to the Empire books or whether they've read the more recent series of books featuring Thrawn. My wife's got them all in hardback, Dave, on her shelf. She, she thinks Thrawn is fantastic. Yep, or saw him in Rebels. So I had high hopes for this, but I... I have a bit of a, a non-spoiler thought to throw up here before we get to the spoiler curtain. Dave, do you want to hear it? Yeah, please, and then I'll give you mine. Okay. Because while I've long been on the side of this thought that 
TV is better than film these days. You can flesh stuff out on TV. You can tell big stories. And all of that is still true to my mind, despite what I'm about to say. When it comes to something like Ahsoka, I think the idea underpinning it all was so basic and so cartoon-like, which is no surprise given animation is Dave Filoni's background, and he wrote all the episodes and sort of showrun the whole thing. I can't help but feeling this would have been better as a two-hour film, maybe a a two-and-a-half-hour film, a runtime that just forces a writer to keep moving with the story, explain things, move to the next bit, chuck out all the folded arms, the staring at things, the walking around without talking and suggesting someone has a secret or an ulterior motive and just dragging that out episode after episode after episode after episode when it's not actually as interesting as they think. So I think this would have made a better film. A couple of weeks ago, Rob, we were recording an episode of our flagship podcast, The Doctor Who Show, mm-hmm. and you'd watched Ahsoka episode six before we recorded. And when we wrapped up, I said, right, I'm now going to go grab dinner and watch Ahsoka episode six. Yes. And you messaged me sort of an hour or so later and said, oh, what did you think? And I said to you, that would have been an awesome episode three. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was episode six. Yes. And that sums up a lot of where I'm going to go in this conversation about Ahsoka. I have a number of really positive points to make. Mm -hmm. I I absolutely do have some positive points to make. But overall, I'm not angry. I'm just a bit disappointed. Mm -hmm. That's fair. And, uh, well, that's probably as far as I'm willing to go before the spoiler curtain. All right. Well, before we do get there, I I did make a note of this too, so I'll throw it up. When we talk about the first two episodes alone of Ahsoka, we're talking about a hundred minutes worth of film. And I thought to myself, that's already the length of a decent film, those first two episodes. And yet nothing really happened. And I thought of something like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And I thought, oh, in that film, Ferris gets up. He constructs how he'll have his day off. He he steals a Ferrari with his best friend. He grabs his girlfriend from school. They have a, a wild day out in Chicago. They do Sears Tower, the Chicago Board of Trade. They go to a ritzy restaurant. They, uh, they go to a Cubs game, Dave. They go to the Art Institute of Chicago. There's a subplot going on with his sister. There's another subplot with the headmaster of the school. He performs Twist and Shout at a big parade. Then he gets back to his mate's place. They destroy the Ferrari. They go home and he wins the day. All of that happens in the same time it took Ahsoka to do, well, not much in those first two episodes. So I thought that was just a, an incredible sort of comparison. When you talk about writing and length, what you can do in the space of a a tight movie versus what Ahsoka did. Or put it another way, it's a four-part Doctor Who story. Yes. Yes, very much so. A Shall full four-part Doctor Who story, yes. So look, on that note... Let's bring the curtain down. Well, here we are, Dave. There are so many ways we can take this conversation. I have notes that go all over the place. Do you want to kick us off, though, with one of your first thoughts? Well, let's perhaps expand on what we were saying before the spoiler curtain with a little bit more spoilerific detail. Okay. I, I Look, I agree. At the end of episode two, I was very unsure about where this show was going to go. Uh, and in fact, I did say in one chat group with a bunch of friends who were watching it who are also Midnight All fans, I did quote a line from The Power and the Passion, nothing ever happens, nothing really matters. And that was sort of, that was sort of how I felt, which is, which is a bit of a joke, a bit unfair, because there were a couple of really interesting concepts 
in those first two episodes that I want to expand on a bit later on in the conversation. But I was very cautious at that point because Andor, the first two episodes were really slow. And we both said, you know, you've got to get to episode three of Andor before it really shifts gear. And then by episode four, it, it absolutely is taking off. Kenobi was a bit the same. So I was like, okay, look, they like to do this slow sort of build opening. I don't think it's necessary. That's interesting. If I can jump in, yeah, that's yeah. interesting because like Andor, they dropped the first two episodes at once. Yeah. Yeah. Which I think suggests they know that one is not enough and people want to power through it a bit. Yeah. And so, look, I was sort of waiting for it to change gears. It did start to change gears, but again, very, very slowly. I honestly think that the end point of the eight episodes should have been reached by episode four. Mm-hmm. And then they should have had a back half of the season that was all about all the stuff that flows on from that. I think I think yeah. it was really a season of setup, and that's a problem. And and the final point for us sort of throw back to you, Robbie, is I did make the comment on Twitter, and a few people agreed with me that they really need somebody like a Terry Nation involved in the writing of these things. Because look, I'm a huge fan of Terry Nation, as you know. Others are to some degree a fan, more or less. But I think everybody acknowledges whatever you say about Terry Nation. He knew that in television, particularly sci-fi, you've got to keep things going and something's got to keep happening. There's mm-hmm. got to be an action beat. There's got to be a revelation. There's got to be a fight. There's got to be, there's got to be something on a regular basis so that there's always something going on. There's always a bit of excitement. There's always a bit of adventure. He would, he yeah. would open his stories with an action beat. Then there'll be a bit of mystery, then a bit of an action beat, then a battle, then some explanation, then a beat. That that, to me, is what was really lacking in this show, which can get away with if it's a book, but this mm-hmm. is episodic TV, and I don't yeah. think that works. Well, you're going to laugh because I've scrolled down in my notes to where I've got notes about this, and I've jotted down that one thing is very clear to me, and that's that Dave Filoni needs a writer's room. So I think we're in similar territory here. And we're in similar territory, too, to George Lucas, I think, making the prequels in the 1990s where it was just yes men surrounding him you see producer rick mccallum and other people on documentaries it's always yes george yes george of course Mm. and to some degree that was earned because lucas invented star wars so if he says something happened or should be a certain way then it's a very brave person to question it someone tough like the original producer of star wars gary kurtz would if he was with george on american graffiti he was on the first two star wars movies he had no issue going toe to toe with lucas because well george was just this guy you know (laughs) (laughs) but that changed over time and there's a new cult i think surrounding dave filoni that seems very similar no one appears to be saying to dave filoni look mate this is really bloated crap you don't need half of this take out this and this and this combine this episode with that episode and maybe we have four 35 minute episodes and if that's too few then you need to have some more meaningful story in here, Dave. Gosh, what I would pay for someone like that to exist and to be listened to on a series like this. So yes, if we could conjure up Terry Nation and he could become Dave Filoni's shadow, that would be amazing. Yeah, look, absolutely. And it's funny you mentioned George Lucas and the prequels because whatever else you say about those prequels, you're never bored. Mm. You are sometimes confused sometimes bewildered, sometimes flabbergasted by the uh, the plot or the acting or whatever, but but you're never bored. And and again you you reference those those uh, behind the scenes 
production things of those prequels. And, and you know, Lucas is very big on that. You know, oh, this has been really exciting. I, I, I don't quite know how it'll fit into the movie, but it'll be really exciting. And, <laughs> and you know, that's that's not a bad place to start. Yeah. You know, I would love the prequels to make more sense and have better stories and better acting and better characters, et cetera, et cetera. But you're never bored. And, yeah. you know, if you're, if you're a kid, particularly watching it, you don't want to be bored. And for too much of Ahsoka, I was bored. Not for all of it. Good stuff, particularly in the back end. But for too much, it was dull. Yeah. And I think getting a writer's room or some writing partners in there would have worked because, folks, when you look at the episode list, it's by Dave Filoni, by Dave Filoni, by Dave Filoni. And he certainly seems very one-eyed about this all being him, all being his vision. Through to it being quite blatant, I think, that he's pushing all of his animated creations front and centre into becoming live action at the expense, I think, of a story that even made sense in-universe and what I mean by that, I'll give you one example. Ahsoka is mates with Luke Skywalker at this point. And this is in her pre-quotation marks, Ahsoka the White Days, as she becomes in the series. So it, this is before the events of Ahsoka. She's been hanging out with Luke. She knows Luke. And yet she didn't think to ask him to come on this mission. To her mind, it was better to take Sabine, the Jedi with no Jedi ability, until the script needed it, of course. Spoilers. It was better to take Sabine over Luke. It wasn't even covered off with a line like she had considered it, but he was busy, or <laughs> I don't know what it would have been. Yeah, yes, that, that's sort of very... I've, I've, I've contacted someone very important, but he's on a secret mission. You know, you yeah. know that... He, he, he's off at Bakura or something, you know. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that, that's another point that I really wanted to make, and that is about this entire franchise, and that is I am more and more starting to struggle to remember where the hell I am in the timeline mm. when I'm watching all of these things because, okay, we had the original saga, the Holy Trilogy, then we had prequels, that was easy, then we had sequels, that was easy, and then, okay, Rogue One's coming in, that slots in there, right, that's fine, and then Solo comes in, it's slowing in there, okay, that's fine. And right now, the Mandalorian's coming in, it's sort of five years after that, okay, right, and now we're doing Boba Fett, which is at the same time, and now we're doing Kenobi, which is 20 years before that, but after that, and now we're doing Ahsoka, which is after Rebels, but before who's met who, when... And I'm just, I just can't stand the confusion in my mind. Yeah. Um, and, and maybe it's because I'm not so, so, so immersed in Star Wars that I kind of, you know, look, if this was Dalek continuity, oh, yeah. not a problem. <laughs> and maybe, you know, maybe there are people out there who are like, no, this is fine because they live and breathe this stuff. Whereas as a more casual fan, I, I was sitting there going, hang on, who who knows who right now? And right, where, where is the, right, the Empire's gone, we're early Republic. Okay, right. Yeah, and look, I don't even pretend to know this stuff myself off by heart. It's literally, as I said, the fact that she hadn't become Ahsoka the White when she was hanging out with Luke that tells me that, ah, that, that, that has got to be before the events of this series where she changed all her clothes into white clothing and sort of did this Gandalf the Grey into Gandalf the White, you know, thing. Right. That's the only reason I know that for sure. Otherwise, I'd be like, ooh, I'm not sure which comes first. Yeah, no, Absolutely. Mm. And I mean, I touched on this, Dave putting his characters front and centre. The creation of Sabine as a Jedi who has no Jedi powers. And all of this happens off camera, mind you, before the series starts. Maybe people who haven't watched Rebels and haven't watched The Clone Wars don't realise this. 
but Sabine doesn't start becoming a Jedi and training with Ahsoka there. So for even people like myself and my wife who started watching Ahsoka and suddenly it's like, oh yes, she's had this big master Padawan relationship with Sabine and, you know, she was going to be a Jedi and it's like, when did this happen? (laughs) This has all happened off camera, you know, and I don't think it needed to be there. She was already a great Mandalorian fighter. She was so good on her own. She was a great artist. I don't think she needed to be pushed towards being a Jedi. It was like, if we can throw in some Doctor Who references, we already have with your Daleks, it was like when Stephen Moffat became obsessed with his creation of Clara and she grew into the most important companion who ever companioned i think someone again needed to say to filoni dave dave just let it go it's not needed but now it's carved into stone sabine who was already this great character she's now extra awesome it's it's very childish writing in some ways it's the kind of story you'd invent for your action figures if you were five years old like oh i've got this action figure it's a mandalorian oh i'm gonna put a lightsaber in its hand now it's a jedi mandalorian wow you know it's it's that kind of level for me yeah and and what you said at the start there is what i saw as well and what i call the harry potter 7 problem right which is the first six harry potter movies all really focused on making sure that the casual audience who hadn't read the book, as in the, was the case with me in the later, later few books, could rock up to the movie and understand the plot. Mm-hmm. But by Harry Potter 7, I was sitting there going, why did that happen? And how did that work? And yeah. friends of mine were going, oh, you need to read the book to understand. And it's like, yeah. well, well, I didn't for the first six, but now I do. And, and this is the same thing. I think for a number of these spin-offs, they have been pretty careful to make sure that casual Star Wars viewers who haven't seen every iteration of every series and read all the books can still keep up. So, for example, there was a bounty hunter dude who rocked up in one of the other series. And I know that there were people who were fans of Clone Wars and the like who went, oh, that's that guy. They brought him back. Oh, that's really cool. But even though I didn't go, oh, that's that guy, I was able to go, okay, he's an alien. He's a bounty hunter. He's a bit of a bad dude. I can now follow this plot and I don't feel as I'm missing anything Mm -hmm. here but for not having watched it. There's enough signalling for me to get away with this. Whereas this was one where I was sitting and going, okay, I know that bit because I've seen that episode of Rebels. Oh, I don't know that bit. And then I'm going... Is that because I haven't seen it, or did they just make that up? Yeah, <laughs> so this the was, latter. Yeah, yeah. So this was the first time out of any of these I've actually felt a little bit like, oh, I haven't done my homework, and now I can't follow it. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah, and that's really important in a series like this because although Dave Filoni might think his animated series are the best things you know ever made, the viewership for those is in the low millions. The Star Wars audience as a whole didn't watch Clone Wars. They didn't watch Rebels. They're these little niche things. Again, people who watch them think they're very important and and big, but they're actually not. And so a show like this really, really needed to explain things. And in some ways it did. And in some ways, yes, you can just pick up on what you think a character might be like that bounty hunter and such and, and just go with it. But I don't think it did enough, and there are examples of that even like in the final episode where Balin Skull is standing up on these big um, <laughs> statues that look like the Argonath from Lord of the Rings, and I'm sure most of the audience were saying, what the hell is that? And I know, but I don't think many other people know. I, I don't. There you go. 
We'll get to that later. A positive, Rob, because we've we've we've, yeah. ba- we've we've bagged the first couple of episodes pretty thoroughly. You know, they're they're dead on the ground with a blood nose right now. Yes. I will say that there were enough nuggets in them to keep me interested. Uh, some of the stuff with the rebels characters was really cool. Seeing a few of those things out there on the big screen, or, or at least the TV screen, was really cool. Some of the stuff they did with the former imperial officers and workers and this idea that when the empire falls we don't all just suddenly become loyal members of the new republic and how does that work and you know it's one of those things if you ever read about germany in 1945 yeah everybody didn't just stop being a nazi overnight some people did some people never were but not everybody did i watched a great movie a couple of years ago set just after the uh end of the dictatorship in taiwan and there's a great bit there which says just because we've become a democracy doesn't mean we've all become democrats overnight and that's a really fascinating idea and so i enjoyed seeing the bits of that that were seated in here and i'd like to see more of that in Star Wars as well. Again, it's some of the stuff we've really enjoyed in Andor. Yeah, I was going to say, we had that exact conversation in our Andor show about Nazi Germany. What I would say, though, is compare the writing, though, where in Andor it felt much more natural, and in this show they were literally explaining it... As Hira Sandula, sorry, sorry, General Hira Sandula. She reminds us she's a general every episode. <laughs> general Hira Sandula and Ahsoka are going along in that little cart, and the guy is explaining it to them so the audience can understand what could otherwise have been shown on screen. And of course, the the ambush scene where the guy, I think, pulls the gun and shouts for the Empire before he starts shooting. <laughs> I think, mate, just pull the gun and start shooting. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I had the same thought, but it, but again, these were the nuggets and ideas that I thought did did yeah. carry me through that first few episodes. Yeah, of course, absolutely. Dave, to go back to the negative, because I have a lot of negative in my notes, <laughs> oh I want to talk member berries. This series leaned so hard into the member berries, and I note that it was the most member berry-friendly episode, the one where... Ahsoka goes to the world between worlds and hangs out with Anakin Skywalker for most of the episode and they do flashbacks to the Clone Wars. Not just the Clone Wars, but literally Clone Wars animated episodes they go back to just to reinforce that, yes, that was real Star Wars, folks. It was animation, but now it's in live action, so all good. Because they know this makes people feel good. They know it makes people talk about the series. And I think it's in real epidemic proportions in pop culture in general. To use Doctor Who again as an example, you saw it in Jodie Whittaker's farewell episode. No one talked about the plot, at least in a favourable way, after that episode aired. It was like it barely existed. It was more, did you see Peter? Did you see Colin? Did you see Sylve? What about when Sylve spoke to Sophie? Oh, how funny was it when Paul McGann wouldn't wear those robes? Oh, what about when Sophie and Janet were running around? What about the companion help group at the end? We saw Ian Chesterton. Wow. And it's like, people, that's all just fluff. It's becoming really embarrassing to be the fan of a property where it can have the most basic, non-event, brain-dead storyline. But as long as they trot out member berries to chew on, a percentage of the audience goes into ecstasy, gives it an instant pass, and starts shouting things like, oh, 10 out of 10, that was the greatest experience I've ever had. I think, what are people watching this for? Okay. Is that too much? No. Yes and no. Okay. Um, um, 
Yes, it's perhaps a little bit too much because I guess you could argue the point. If the purpose of television is to entertain and people walked out of there going, I absolutely love that. It made me a little bit hard down below and I'm giving it a 10 out of 10. Well, you know, okay, then they were entertained. You you can make the argument that the job was done. You can also, as you've said, say that, well, actually, I'd like to have a little bit more substance and backbone and, and the like in my television. And, and yes. that's, that's, that's entirely valid too. But to kind of, you know, take the counter argument to you in some ways, if somebody gives an episode a 10 out of 10, well, obviously it worked for them. So I, I'm agreeing with you in saying perhaps you're being a little bit too hard at the same time. The audience will judge. However, where mm-hmm. I'm not disagreeing with you is the danger of doing that. Because whilst I've seen about two-thirds of Rebels, I haven't seen a minute of Clone Wars. Okay. So after I'd done the, oh, wow, they've got Hayden Christensen back. That's really cool. And, you know, I really like Hayden Christensen. I've said before, I think that before Star Wars, he was a really good actor. Loving him in my life as a house. Love him in Shattered Glass and all that sort of thing. Given an impossible job in in those two prequels. Um, given just appalling dialogue and not his fault. Yeah. So I was really happy to see Hayden back and actually given some stuff to do. But I spent a large amount of that episode sitting there going, huh? Mm. What? Where? Why? I had no idea what was going on. Absolutely no idea. And was, for the most part, just bored stiff because I had no context in which to do it. And beyond a bit of a curiosity about... How is Anakin here? Is he a force ghost? Is he a projection? You know, da, da, da. I was just lost. I was utterly lost. So so whilst, yeah, the member berries were great for people who had those experiences, I didn't. And it wasn't just a yeah. case of, oh, this doesn't quite resonate for me. This was a case of, I am lost. Yeah. Well, even the script played pretty low and loose with that to the degree that fandom is still debating whether Ahsoka dreamed that sequence set in the world between worlds in which case she would have been underwater for a long long time because day went into night uh so how did she hold a breath that long or whether she physically went to the world between worlds as they call it and actually met a version of anakin skywalker there they still debate over that because the show just didn't say i was happy to accept that because the force was very active at that moment. She was sort of shielded from the water and didn't drown. That that there was a head cannony thing there for me that was quite easy. Yeah, and that's fair, Dave. And that's one of the interpretations fans have of it. One thing I will say with regard to Hayden Christensen is it's great to have Hayden back. And I see a lot of people saying, Hayden, Hayden, I love you, I love you. And the weird thing about that though is I don't think these people who are saying that, suddenly think that semi-wooden performance in the prequels is now Oscar award winning. They've fallen in love with the character through the animations and the stories in the animations. And Christensen wasn't involved with them. Obviously, the character was animated and it was voiced by a completely different person. But when he comes back as the character they've grown to love, he's now reaping the reward of being that character... (laughs) More so than people think he's suddenly become a great actor. Certainly his fight skills are good. Well, I won't underplay those. But it's because of what he was in the animation, which again wasn't Hayden Christensen. So I just find that very, very strange. Yeah, there's a bit of an element that I've discovered with fandoms generally, and particularly Star Wars fandoms, where 
and at the risk of being controversial here, and listeners, if you think I'm wrong, write in and tell us. Happy to have that sure. conversation. But but the the everyone gets a prize generation oh God. has sort of come up and, and is judging it. And, and I've seen comments on Twitter that say that, you know, there is no such thing as a bad performance. Every performance is a valid performance. Every actor's choice is a valid choice. And one of the times where this particularly came up was when, um, when Armored Best had his role as the Jedi Knight in the Mandalorian series, series three flashback. And a lot of people were saying, you know, congratulations to the showrunners. You know, you've redeemed Armored Best. You've given him a good role. And, you know, that's a really, really cool and wonderful thing to do. And there are all these people saying, how dare you? He gave a valid performance as Jar Jar. There's no such thing as a bad performance. That was a good performance. Like, no, 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 there are bad performances. And, yeah. you know, I will defend Hayden Christensen in many ways, but there are absolutely scenes in the prequel movies where he gives a bad performance. Now, yes, I don't know anyone who would give a good performance with some of that George Lucas dialogue, but he gave a bad performance. You know, he's surrounded by blue screens and all sorts of things. I get it. I get the mitigation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's giving the performance that's on, on the page and that George is directing him to give. Correct. I get the mitigation, but they were not good performances in some places. Some of them were great. When he loses his rag, there's some really great, creepy performances. Mm-hmm. But some of them weren't. So, so yeah, I, I kind of find that whole, like, you know, everybody's a valid person, everybody gets a prize, everybody's a good actor. Like, no, no bad actors exist. I think it's that, funnily, you should mention the Every Child Wins a Prize generation. I think it's that generation they're trying to appeal to with Sabine's Jedi powers. We've had people online just recently saying, oh, the Force is in everything, so of course you can become a Jedi if you just concentrate. And it's like, oh, really? So everyone in the universe can be a Jedi now? And when the Jedi would take children to the temple for training, they could have just grabbed any child. Is that the case? Because any child, as long as they concentrated, could be a Jedi. That's absurd. That's not how George Lucas wrote this stuff. So I wonder if Dave Filoni writing this idea in now into Star Wars that, oh yeah, as long as you just concentrate, because, you know, you've got the force in you. And if you just concentrate and try hard, you can you can do it. I wonder if that's an every child wins a prize generation kind of thing. Rob, that's a perfect segue to two of my points. Oh, great. Would you like to do Jedi or do you want to do cartoon versus reality? Oh, let's start with Jedi. This is a slight reheat, but a continuation of a conversation we've had a couple of times now talking about Star Wars. And, Mm -hmm. And it's become really, really apparent in these last couple of seasons that no one's quite sure what a Jedi is. And part of that is because it was never really defined in the original trilogy. You know, in Star Wars, we get to see Obi-Wan use a lightsaber, do his little Jedi mind trick, and, you know, kind of help to direct Luke to concentrate a bit. Mm -hmm. It, 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 It was very sort of subtle sort of things. As it went on, you can see them have the power of telekinesis and a little bit of telepathy and all that sort of thing. And it makes you a bit more focused, a bit stronger, and you could do a bit of magic. It was all very sort of unrefined and in some ways a little bit low-key. You then get to the Phantom Menace where the Jedi are just absolutely super powerful. They can do force pushes. They can jump over tall buildings with a single bound. They can breathe Mm. underwater. You know, a Jedi can do anything until the script requires them to be quickly and mercilessly slaughtered with a couple of gunshots. Um, You know, but, but there is that sort of sense of the Jedi can do anything except what the script can't let them do. And so now we're in this thing where I don't think we quite know how powerful Ahsoka's meant to be and how powerful, therefore, Sabine is meant to be and how powerful a natural Jedi is and how powerful an untrained Jedi is. And there were lots of times where I was watching Ahsoka have fights. I'm going, 
do some force pushing. Do some of that Obi-Wan stuff. You know, do some of that mm-hmm. Qui-Gon stuff because they took down armies of hundreds of robots, you know, with their hands. Yeah. Um, why can't you? And I do think that that is starting to wear a bit in the universe. Yeah, no, that's very fair. And yeah, look, George brought in the idea of midi-chlorians in The Phantom Menace as a way of explaining that the Force is in everyone, but if you have a higher midi-chlorian count in your blood, like uh, Qui-Gon tests Anakin's blood, then you have more affinity for tapping into it. And I always thought that was a fair and equitable thing. It was it was giving a sort of a scientific explanation for something that had been a bit magical up until then. But it made sense as to why the Force does surround us and permeate us and bind us and all of that stuff that Obi-Wan says. But some people just can't do anything with it. And people would show their latent skills by being particularly good at certain things, you know, and this is how Jedi would would get found out and the Jedi Order would come and and take kids who had this aptitude and all of this stuff and take them away for training, you know, so they could probably harness those powers. This idea, though, now that, oh, yeah, because it's in everyone, (laughs) anyone can do it as long as they try. (laughs) Dave, it's just stupid. It's stupid. Yeah, and, and you know, we, we don't necessarily need Star Wars to be Star Trek where everything has a Bible and everything has a rule book. You know, I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the inconsistencies are now perhaps to the extent where you kind of... They, they, they're to the detriment of the series. Yeah. Hit me with your other topic. Uh, cartoon versus reality. Mm-hmm. We have an interesting thing here, and it's happened before, but this is, this is where it's really happened in earnest. As you said, there was a sort of a... Uh, a semi-wilderness years period for Star Wars where we had the cartoon series, Clone Wars, Rebels, and the like. And one of the great advantages of doing a cartoon is that you're not restricted to your characters being humans with funny hats, eyebrows, face paint, rubber suits. Um, Or or if you have a huge amount of money, which most TV shows don't, you know, the full anti-circus motion capture sort of thing. You know, that's really not a path most things can go down so yeah on television you're sort of restricted to actor in rubber mask with makeup in a cartoon you're not in a cartoon you can have skulls that are clearly not the right shape you can have people who are thinner and fatter and have really weird different sort of aspects to them Mm. and that's really cool until you bring them into the television world yeah and oh look there were just a number of characters from here who look it was great to see the rebels characters in the flesh so to speak but some of them just looked utterly ridiculous. Now, now we'd seen this before in a couple of cases. I know that when the Inquisitor was in Kenobi, there were people who were like, his skull's the wrong shape. It's like, yes, because there's a real person with a real skull under that makeup. So, <laughs> so sorry, dude. Yes, his skull is the yeah. wrong shape. Live with that. But some of the decisions here, like they just work in cartoons and look terrible. I think Ahsoka's head tentacles never for one moment looked anything other than ridiculous. Ridiculous for me. Heroes weren't much better. At least she's got that weird 1920 set of driving goggles to to sort of hide the joins and they sort of just sit at the back. But mm. just too many characters too often have just gone, sorry, you've tried to match the cartoon and it looks ridiculous. Well, there's a couple of directions I can talk about now, but the main one I think that ties in most here is coloured contact lenses. To look like their characters, Hera, Ahsoka, and Ezra, 
all three of them wear colored contact lenses that look incredibly unnatural. And the eyes are very important in acting. John Pertwee would always say this, wouldn't he, Dave? You've got to see the eyes. You know, yes. the eyes convey yes. everything. And when the eyes are mostly covered with a very bright cartoonish color, because, you know, oh, look, Ezra had blue eyes in the in the Rebels animated series. So the, the guy's got to have blue eyes. They just look unnatural. And when the characters are looking at things, it doesn't look quite right. I would have just rather they just went with their normal eye colours, honestly, and maybe had the odd fanboy or girl saying, oh, that's not the right eye colour. Too bad. Again, like the skull example you gave, this is a better way to do it. I would have gone that way. Does funny coloured eyes take us to Thrawn? If you like. (laughs) Uh, Look, I enjoyed Thrawn. I think the series would have been far more interesting if we'd had far more of Thrawn a lot earlier, and indeed had Thrawn got to do anything more than stand in the same room for two episodes. Yeah. Great character, great performance. He, he looked good. There was a lot of really good detail with the uniform where they sold this idea that it had been several years that he'd been living in this isolated, far, far away galaxy. So I think I would like to see more happen with him. And this, this is another translation to the median thing that sort of matters i hate to be one of those people who's like oh but the book was better because i hate those people because like adaptions are meant to be adapted for different mediums that's how it works so i say this with you know full sense of irony and um self-deprecation but thrawn did come to life in the air of the empire books by timothy zahn because they were books because you could do page after page of this is how Thrawn is thinking and this is the trick behind what Thrawn is doing and this yes. this is the twist. And, and, and that's a really good thing for a book. In Rebels, Thrawn works because that's a very simple series and because he's the actually competent bad guy. So yeah. so he's, he's a level above everyone else because he's actually really good at his job and that makes him scary. But it's nothing more than that. And that's fine for Clone Wars because Clone Wars is at the end of the day, you know, a, sorry, Rebels, is at the end of the day a kid series. Hmm. Here, he had the presence, he had the command presence, he had the authority. He was shown to be you know, reasonably good at strategy. Although, to be perfectly frank, while they were distracted, I did something else, was not the greatest, you know, four-dimensional piece of chess playing that, that I've ever seen. I liked all these attacks that failed, and when they failed, it was like, yes, that was part of the plan. <laughs> yeah, so, like, I enjoyed seeing him. He definitely lifted the series. I think that it is a great shame that we didn't get to him quicker, which would have been more interesting. And as I say, we didn't have him get away from that planet by about episode four, so we could have four episodes of Let's Really Show Thrawn at his Grand Admiral best. And I hope that if we're doing a Soka series too, mm. we're going to lean into that a lot more. Yeah. On Thrawn, I'd say the guy is a genius in all the media he's been in to date. And here he was used very perfunctorily. He just would stand around, as you say, in the one room, giving orders for attacks when they failed. He'd say, oh, that was part of the plan. He leaned on the Great Mothers a heap, even though there's no backstory as to how they met up or why they teamed up. I think it's something to do with the cargo he's loading onto the Star Destroyer has something to do with the Great Mothers, but their actual relationship wasn't really explained. The the Great Mothers were just there, deferential to him. They can do magic, the end. He didn't use art once, as far as I recall, even though that's his whole shtick. 
to people who don't know the character, none of this would really stand out. He'd just be, oh, he's the villain. That's who they wanted to find. He does villain things. Look, look, just just to interrupt, there, there was somebody at work who was watching this series and they've never read Enter the Empire. They haven't seen Rebels. And they just said to me, that Thrawn guy's a really cool character. I love him. And I was like, oh, really? Have you heard of him before? Nah. So, yeah, if you if you were new to him, he was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. But I would say to anyone who does know the guy, yeah, there's there's a lot more that he should be doing or could be doing, like I've just outlined. Maybe feeling let down is even too tame a way to phrase all of this. I think the portrayal itself was okay. I, I think Mickelson was maybe a little fat for the role physically because Thrawn is always, he's such a driven, in command of his brain and his body, Rebels, we see him training, and he is an incredibly fit dude. Here, it's like he's eaten all the pies. Uh, that didn't sort of come across well. Was it, was it meant to show that he perhaps let himself go a little in isolation? You can maybe headcanon it that way. Yeah, but, yeah maybe. But he's such a, as I say, he's, he's so in command of himself, which includes his body. I'm not sure he would let that happen. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point as well. Yeah. So, look, I was, I was quite let down by the way he was portrayed i mean mickelson does a good voice and he did do the voice in rebels and he looked okay he looked a little like elon musk though i've got to say um, yeah i didn't pick that until twitter did and like i see what they're oh before, really but, but it wasn't i didn't go oh my god look I, I i generally don't spend my life thinking about elon musk so i didn't <laughs> i didn't pick that but yeah that, I, once you're told you do see it yes yeah look compared to what he could have been and if we had had four episodes of him coming into the galaxy and starting to wreak havoc on the outer rim and the new republic is just like holy hell and we start having some space battles and stuff oh my god that could have been incredible maybe all that stuff is saved for the movie yeah yeah look if if we had seen him come back and then do a variation or a version of his siege of coruscant from dark force rising that would be really cool visually really dramatic and really show sort of the cunning of Thrawn. You know, that's the sort of thing I would have liked to have seen. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Dave, let's talk about some of the new characters who popped up in this show because for mine, it was characters like Balin Skull, played by the late Ray Stevenson, and Shin Haiti, played by Ivana Sakno, who I found possibly the most compelling and interesting and possibly doing the best acting in this piece as well. What did you think of Balin Skull and or Shin Haiti? Right, now this is where we get down to the Star Wars names that I can never remember. Oh, okay. Balin Skull, I know which one he is, and he was kind of cool. Shin Haiti is his little offsider with the blonde hair and the goth girl sort of attitude. Yeah, I spent the first few episodes wondering why he was carrying a cardboard cutout around with him, and then I realised it was actually a character. Dave, that's terrible. Sorry. I thought she was really good. I thought she was a cardboard cutout. Wow. Okay, look, I, I thought she was a very good match for Balin. He's big, he's male, he's dark, she's small, she's female, she's fair. She's got that, as I said, that goth girl vibe going on, which is which is quite appropriate for someone who's does not... Does she? I think so. Oh, that's generous of you. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk about Ray Stevens as a Balin skull. Now we're talking, Dave. <laughs> Arguably the most interesting character in the whole thing, and not just because of his actual storyline. I mean, his actual storyline is, I need to go to the other universe. And once he's there, it's, I need to find this source of power that I can send. And it doesn't go beyond that. We don't get much there. 
I find him interesting, on the other hand, because of the way he sees the world and his little incidental lines here and there. He, he likes the idea of the Jedi, but not what they became. He doesn't want to kill Ahsoka, as there are so few Jedi as it stands. That's his worldview, and the way he delivers that line is so interesting. It's more interesting to me than, oh, he's searching for something, we're not going to tell you what it is, you know, in episode after episode. I, I liked the smaller moments with him and thinking about who this character could be and how he's ended up as a sort of, he's, he's certainly not Sith, he's, he's more of a grey Jedi, I would say. Oh, I found him a compelling character, even though he didn't get a lot of screen time. Yeah, he didn't get a lot of screen time. He should have got more. And I thought, I perhaps didn't find the character quite as interesting as you did, but I found the performance was definitely one that elevated a thinly written and little seen character into a much bigger part of the show. Yeah, absolutely. And with the way the episode ended, as I say, with him standing on the uh, the Argonath, that's, <laughs> that's a Lord of the Rings reference, Obviously, that has to go on in the second series, so I assume he can only be recast. They're going to have to recast him. That's going to be quite a quite a task for them, I think. Yes, yes, that is probably the better choice, but we'll see what they do. Yeah. Now, I know we're about to wrap up, so I'll, I'll just talk here briefly. I made a note about what's going on, because I guess a lot of people watching were asking themselves at the end there, Sure, they can comprehend that Thrawn is now back into the proper Star Wars galaxy and that Ezra tagged along. I've got a note about that too. Meanwhile, Sabine and Ahsoka are stuck back in the other galaxy on Peridia, although stuck might be a stretch given they can just hitch a ride with a Star Whale back home. And of course, Balin, Skull and Shin Hadi are lurking around. And as I said, Balin is standing on top of that huge statue and people are saying, what's all that about? Basically, they're carvings of the Mortis gods. The son, who is aligned with the dark side, the daughter, who is aligned with the light side, and the father, who represents balance of the force. These came up a few times in the Clone Wars and in Rebels. So, again, it's Filoni referencing himself and bringing his animated ideas into live action, and, you know, we, we can have comments on that. But it would seem that's what Balin is drawn to, the power of the Mortis gods. Maybe it's something he thinks he can harness. But it was very underplayed, very unexplained on screen. He didn't at any point turn to Shin and say, you know, I'm off to find the Mortis gods or anything like that, anything direct. So a lot of people are confused about what happened there at the ending, and that's that's it, essentially. Fair enough. Um, a final point from me, mm-hmm. and that is to have a quick chat about the character of Ezra. Yes. Ezra, of course, was a very big part, in, in some ways the big part of rebels and i must admit i really liked his character in rebels i I quite like that idea of the i mean he's an archetypal character you know the the young orphan that finds that he's got powers and has to go on a quest and mature and grow up and all the rest of that i've got friends who absolutely loathed him because they just saw him as another precocious space boy that you know fans all hate but look i really liked him and so i was quite keen to see how he would come back and i was quite keen as i was with thrawn like okay this is great but can we get to thrawn can we get to ezra when i first saw ezra i was a bit disappointed because i sort of thought oh they've i mean you know they have to time's passed he's going to be in his 20s now they they made the right decision but he felt a lot older at first he looked older he's got the beard i sort of thought oh they've lost what was exciting about the character but then as he went on 
Mm-hmm. You start to see those lovely, cheeky little moments, the twinkle in the eye, the, the, the sense of fun, the sense of fallibility, which was always a big part about Ezra and, and why he wasn't one of these like, it's another all-powerful Jedi who's going to be trained up to be an all-powerful Jedi who's really powerful. It's like, no, no, this, this guy's a bit of a... He's fallible. He makes mistakes. He, he makes errors. He's, he's, he's adorable in that sort of way. And so they did start to show a bit of that, and that was really cool. So, again, Ezra was a highlight for me, and again, it's a shame it took us nearly six hours to get to him. I agree with all of that, but Ezra falls a couple of times into a a section I marked here, stupid stuff. We won't go through it all, but some of my stupid stuff was Sabine being skewered with the lightsaber and walking it off. Just dumb. Um, Well, let's let's just go down that rabbit hole for 30 seconds. It mm -hmm. seems to be now established canon that lightsabers aren't actually all that dangerous after all and Qui-Gon was just very unfortunate and Han Solo and Force Awakens yes yes like like <laughs> we've had that many people now in the last few years survive what should have been mortal blows with a lightsaber that we just I think we just have to go lightsabers aren't that powerful anymore folks oh. It was a pointless scene anyway, Dave, as if they were going to be killing Sabine. It didn't have the audience on the edge of their seats. They could have just had Shin Haiti kick the snot out of Sabine and then run off before Ahsoka could arrive. Same result, she ends up in hospital. Cue all those scenes in hospital. It didn't have to be a lightsaber wound. Anyway, I'll zip my mouth on that. Yep, back out Uh, of that rabbit hole. Back out of that rabbit hole. I had other stupid stuff like Morgan Elspeth. She is aligned with Dathomir and the Night Sisters, but the Empire tried to wipe out the Night Sisters. Actually, they're pretty damn good at doing it. So why she's hot to trot to help the Empire, that's a mystery. Probably one we won't uncover now that she's dead. Ahsoka fighting in space in the spacesuit. That was just stupid. Thrawn's troops with their armor with the Kintsugi effect uh, all over it. Who have they been fighting for the past 10 years, Dave, that all their armor is spashed and needs to be fixed in the Kintsugi way? I mean, I think it's just Dave Filoni saying, look, their armor's got a Kintsugi effect. That's Japanese, kids. And Star Wars has always had Japanese influences, right? Like, oh, no, it's stupid. I have no idea what some of those words were there, Rob. but, But I thought it was kind of neat that they looked like they'd been out of action for five years and floundering for materials and parts and stuff so not knowing the reference that look worked for oh me. i see okay kintsugi is where the japanese if they break a vase they'll repair it and put gold leaf down the cracks that they've repaired right. you know so that objects have value even when they're broken and all their armor though was absolutely smashed i thought who have they been fighting on this planet for that to even happen not the turtle people who i don't know anyway getting to ezra they do ezra's escape from thrawn's ship off screen that's a cheat dave it feels unearned it was a huge cheat yes even though i think it would have been really interesting to see how it would have happened and apparently apparently dave ezra keeps his stormtrooper on the whole way back to the rebel fleet somehow he gets clearance to land without anyone knowing who they're allowing to land in an imperial shuttle he then walks out of the shuttle in his full stormtrooper gear including the helmet this is just stupid just so he can take it off and we can have the it's ezra moment for hera that isn't how real life works it was dumb af (laughs) stupid and and again had Thrawn left the planet at the end of episode four, episode five could have been about how do they get away with Thrawn and where's Thrawn going next? And oh my God, Thrawn's going here. So we need to get away to warn them with, you know, you can see where that would go. And that would be a really cool episode five, setting up the last three episodes to be, can we stop Thrawn from doing his next big thing? Now he's back. Ezra sneaking around a Star Destroyer. 
yes, that would have been very, very cool. Mm. My other note on Ezra, when we find him, he isn't interested in having a lightsaber. He's beyond that. He he just needs the Force. Ah, oh, okay. Then, the very next episode, he jumps at the chance to build a lightsaber. <laughs> not only does this not ring true after the previous episode's comments, but it makes no sense. He wasn't holding off taking back the lightsaber from Sabine, knowing that there would be a robot with a bunch of parts on the ship that he could build a new one. It was simply so that a new lightsaber could be made and giving us that scene where Ahsoka, Sabine and Ezra all had a lightsaber. No more, no less. And I was just like... Oh, God, I hated that. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Anyway, maybe it's time to wrap up. Yeah, and, and look, I, I don't have any big summary thoughts. I think we've covered it all. There were a lot of niggles in this and a lot of problems with this. I think we've had more negatives than positives, and that's a real shame. Was there enough to keep me watching this? Yes. Was there enough to keep us talking for 50-something minutes? Clearly. Mm-hmm. Did it need someone to come in and do a bit of a rewrite on this, yes. yes. The script the script was flabby. The script was lazy. Thrawn was flabby. Thrawn was flabby. <laughs> there was a lot of potential here that didn't quite come off. And that's why I just come back to, I'm not angry. I'm just a bit disappointed because it could have been so much better. It wasn't terrible. This is not the book of Boba Fett. No. But it could have been a lot better. Yeah, quite right, Dave. I've been mostly down on this in today's podcast and what's interesting for anyone who saw me rating it on twitter across the first five eps or so before i stopped rating it and brought my feelings internal i was giving it like six out of ten six out of ten seven out of ten eight out of ten eight out of ten and i do stand by those ratings looking at the episodes objectively and weighing up the good versus the bad i felt it got progressively better Sure, I was still throwing 8 out of 10 at episodes like the one with young Ahsoka in it that you know, it felt like the rest of fandom was saying was the greatest thing ever made. It was, you know, Citizen Kane for our times and all of that sort of stuff. But each episode did do dumb things. It could have been tighter, as you say, but it still had value overall. So I sort of sit in a funny place with the series. I think it was slow. I think the story was too thin. I think the characters and or the portrayals of the characters by the actors didn't really ring true in several examples. I don't think they'd gone back and watched their animated versions to sort of get a feel for how they should be playing them. But at the same time, there was this production quality to it. The casting of people like Ray Stevenson was really good. And there were some genuinely interesting moments for me not to write it off completely. I think there's big room for improvement. I think some fans wouldn't actually see that at all. They'd be saying, why aren't you giving it 10 out of 10? It was the greatest thing ever made. And just to conclude, I think one of the oft-repeated lines on social is that Ahsoka is saving Star Wars or that Dave Filoni is saving Star Wars. And I don't believe that for a second. I think Ahsoka is helping to kick Star Wars along, kick the can down the road with a particular kind of fan. But I'm not sure this is broadly appealing, amazing stuff by any any stretch. You know what I was thinking of as I was listening to your comments there? Mm-hmm. My reaction at the end of Solo. Okay. Where I said, you know what, I didn't hate that. It could have been a lot better. It could have been a lot tighter. I wasn't quite sure what some of the reference is about. But my big thought at the end of Solo, and I know a friend of the podcast, Richard, who I discussed this with, felt, felt very much the same, was, okay, that wasn't perfect, but where they've set things up for the sequel is actually really cool and interesting. And that's perhaps my very final thought on Ahsoka. 
I wasn't madly in love with season one, but where they've set everything up to go in season two, they took too long to get there, but mm-hmm. I think there's some very interesting, good stuff set up now to dive into if it gets a second season. I think it will get that second season, and I think you're quite right in what you're saying is possible. It all depends, though, whether the first three episodes are just Thrawn sitting at the edge of known space talking about stuff and not actually doing anything, <laughs> or whether they have him fly in and actually start smashing stuff straight away. Yeah, look, I mean, potentially you've got the New Republic gearing up for a fight. You can have Thrawn doing badass Thrawn stuff. You've got Ezra back. You've got the team together. You've got the Anakin Force ghost, whatever that was, that made his little appearance at the end going, you know, hey, I'm still here. So there's more to this than there was just one episode. All the pieces are there for a good season two. So for all my reluctance about the first series, I'm on board for the second. Yep, yep, yep. Of course, Sabine and Ahsoka have to get off Peridia. They have to deal, I assume, with Bale and Skull and Shin Haiti before they do. They probably swoop in in episode six, Dave, and, and help win a big battle or something. Who knows? Who knows? But bring on Andor series two. Yes, please. Yes, <laughs> please. <laughs> so we're going to be back in a couple of weeks with our flagship Doctor Who show episode where we're looking at all of season eight of Doctor Who and that's going to be really exciting and then we'll be kicking off into some hot takes very soon yeah and it's funny that we're talking earlier in this episode about um, member berries and things because knocking on the the door of the 60th anniversary of Doctor Who I think we're going to be getting a whole member berry pie Dave but that's (laughs) that's probably excusable in a 60th anniversary year not as excusable in a regular series like Ahsoka Look, the two of us are huge fans of the Five Doctors, so we we can't judge an anniversary for being member berry full. Correct. Sometimes member berries are just right. So, look, let us know what you thought about Ahsoka. Did you agree? Did you not agree? Absolutely. Reach us at hello at thedwshow.net. But until next time, I've been Rob. And I've been Dave. And we'll see you then on the Doctor Who Show. Goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Alternate Galaxies, the podcast where Rob and Dave from the Doctor Who show take a look at other great sci-fi and fantasy that we think Doctor Who fans might like. You can reach us at hello at the dwshow.net, on Twitter at the dwshow, or on Facebook forward slash the dwshow. Alternate Galaxies is an irregular podcast, so stay tuned to the Doctor Who show and other programs on our feed to know when the next episode's coming. Our theme music is called Wretched Destroyer and is by Kevin McLeod. Find him at incompetech.com. Well, that's it for this episode. We hope you enjoyed the show and we'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.